This is the BBC. Ask any violinist to name the finest romantic sonata of them all, and I'm pretty sure César Franck's A major violin sonata would end up very near the top of the heap. Franck was in his early 60s when he wrote this lyrical masterpiece, and he managed to combine French romanticism with classical tradition while borrowing his friend Franz Liszt's technique of weaving a theme all the way through the sonata as a unifying thread. Of course, it's been recorded by many of the great violinists and pianists over the years, but which duo takes us to the heart of the Franck Sonata? I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of Record Review on BBC Radio 3, and in this podcast edition of Building a Library, reviewer Mahan Esfahani compares recordings of the Franck Violin Sonata dating back as far as the 1930s, and he'll remind us why it was written in the first place. do most people give and receive as wedding gifts? Some cash from close family? A camera for our honeymoon? Maybe several toasters of the same model. But for his wedding in 1886, the violinist Eugène Isaïe received a truly priceless gift in the form of a sonata for violin and piano by his friend César Franck. After the ceremony, Isaïe and his pianist had a quick rehearsal and then premiered the sonata for the wedding guests. That afternoon, in a little town in the southern countryside of Belgium, the guests would have heard the first strains of what has become one of the staples of the violin repertoire. The opening strains of the first movement of Franck's violin sonata, as performed by Gerhard Taschner with Walter Gieseking in 1947. 
Tushner's playing represents the lost idiom of the Austro-Hungarian violin school, full of an absolutely gorgeous portamento and controlled vibrato applied as an ornament. As with the composer's slightly later D minor symphony, Franck's sonata for violin uses what his student Vincent Dandy called the cyclical principle, and opens with the generative cell, or theme, which not only reappears throughout, but, in a sense, does not make its complete melodic personality known until the end of the work. The fine American violinist Gil Shaham has a careful but never calculated approach to the opening material, as though he is creating it right there on the spot. His tone is wonderfully strong but flexible, and it's not until after the first major piano solo that he really lets the violin part gain in momentum and then return to the hesitation of the opening bars. Gil Shaham with the pianist Gerhard Opitz. This is the kind of recording that reminds me why I love this piece. My only gripe here is that when the violin melody returns in the relative minor, after the piano solo, he more or less ignores Franck's directive that the violinist play dolcissimo, as sweetly as possible. Shaham changes his tone much later, almost too late for my taste. But this is nonetheless a recording of great achievement, made all the more remarkable by the fact that when this album was issued, the violinist was only 19. I hope he'll record it again. Leonid Kogan, on the other hand, is quite forthright about the opening theme. He infuses it with a richness foreshadowing all the emotional odyssey to come. Thank you. 
The Russian virtuoso Leonid Kogan, with his daughter Nina at the piano, in the opening of Frank's Violin Sonata. I have to confess an interest here, in that Kogan is pretty much my number one in the pantheon of recorded violinists, so it's hard for me to criticize him. And everything he did is why I love the great school of Soviet string players. But the sound Augustin Dumay draws from his violin in a 1993 Deutsche Grammophon recording with the pianist Maria Joa Pires has made me reconsider the very meaning of this opening movement. Augustin Dumais, a veritable prince amongst violinists, and that title I bestow with respect to his tone. The flawless narrative thread of Dumais' playing leads us through the sublime nuances of Franck's melodic line, mostly through the violinist's ever-changing palette of color. Here is a violinist commanding a vocabulary of timbres that serve the specific indications of the score itself. For a contrasting approach, Insofar as violin color could be said to have its own logic, independent of whatever the composer indicates or indeed wants in the score, there is the reading by Anne-Sophie Mutter.
the violinist Anne-Sophie Mutter with her long-standing collaborator Lambert Orcus. Mutter's highly individual sound, which is partly a result of a flexible bow hold allowing for more flexing of the wrist, might be read by some as exhibiting mannerisms not wholly justified by the music. As a failed violinist myself, I'm fascinated by the way that different schools of violin playing approach this piece. Veteran American violinist Itzhak Perlman pairs with Marta Argerich for a reading which combines the power of Mutter's sound with a more straightforward approach. The conclusion of the first movement of the Franck Violin Sonata, as performed by Itzhak Perlman and Marta Argerich in a live recording from 1998. Compared to the playing of Augustin Dumay or Gerhard Taschner, Perlman's playing is defined by a much faster bow stroke, and yet his tone has an inimitable sweetness recognizable only as the Perlman sound. And Argerich's interpretation of the piano part is positively orchestral in its range of textures. As we shall hear, though, quite a few violinists seem to make an unfortunate trade-off between power and color. Following the almost unassuming first movement, Franck opens the second one, marked Allegro, with a brooding, dark solo for the piano, which introduces in the inner voice a melody of unrequited Wagnerian longing. As is to be expected from such a violinist with a unique sound, when Kogan enters in response to this melody, his tone is appropriately intense and full of dramatic sweep. Leonid and Nina Koken, in the opening of the second movement of Franck's sonata. The piano part of this movement is fiendish, 
difficult not only in purely physical terms, but in the balance between the complexities of counterpoint with the ethereal textures intended by the composer. This sort of helps separate the wheat from the chaff. I cannot recommend the second recording by Yasha Heifetz, played at his last recital in 1972. Heifetz's first version of the Frank Sonata is another matter. Recording in 1937, his colleague at the piano was none other than Arthur Rubinstein. The results are as one can imagine from so distinguished a pair. Yasha Heifetz on the fiddle, with Arthur Rubinstein reigning at the keyboard. Though their general approach is just an iota quicker than that of virtually all the other recordings I've listened to, the effect is thrilling, and it must be said, they dispatch Franck's demands with great aplomb. This movement offers a chance for a pianist like Katya Bunyatishvili to excel and fully embody the role of duo partner to the French violinist Renaud Capuçon. In their superb recording, Capuçon and Bunyatishvili bring deep reflection intermingled with fantasy and even majesty to Franck's score.
Renaud Capuçon, bringing richness and reflection to the second movement of Franck's sonata with pianist Katya Bunyatishvili. I have to admit that Capuçon's virtuosity aside, his tone does get a bit hard at times, and, well, I just miss Dumais' sound. It's not that I don't like Capuçon, quite the contrary. But let's hear how Dumais and Pires once again perform this particular movement. Violinist Augustin Dumais with Maria Joa Pires at the piano. A heartbreaking take on the complexities of the second movement from Franck's violin sonata. Other violinists might have more power and drive, but Dumais finds a chance in every bar of Franck's score to open different worlds of tone in his violin. The effect is remarkable and holds the attention like no other recording. In the third movement, we come to a different kind of difficulty and complexity from that of the pyrotechnics in the second. Called by the composer himself a recitativo fantasia, this movement opens essentially as a meditation on the theme heard in the first movement. Here's the duo of star violinist Joshua Bell with Jeremy Denk at the piano. Thank you. 
the elusively sublime recitative in the third movement of Franck's Sonata, as interpreted by Joshua Bell and Jeremy Denk. I like it, but I don't love it. Maybe it's the straightforward quality of Denk's pretty lackluster piano playing here and elsewhere. The dynamic Kyunghwa Chung conjures a whole different world with her take on this movement, supported by Radu Lupu at the piano. There's so much I really love about Chung's and Lupu's recording. The pacing, the intensity, the perfection of it all. Occasionally I feel slightly browbeaten by Chung's bowstroke, but the general quality is so impressive. Nonetheless, impressive is not the same as touching. Looking for something a bit more tender, I turn to the 1945 reading by the Franco-Italian violinist Zino Francescati with Robert Cassidessou at the piano. Thank you. 
Zeno Francescati's colorful dynamics in this movement most likely result from his use of that flexible Franco-Belgian bow hold, with a curved thumb under the bow and an index finger perched right on top of it. This style of playing is perfectly suited to Franck Sonata, not only because of national connotations, whatever those mean, but also because of the sensitivity that can result in a thousand different colors. As a result, even through the crackling sound of this old recording, one can hear Francescati's unique fluttering vibrato. Others, like Chung, Kogan, and Heifetz, use a more rigid Russian bow hold, as does Vadim Repin. Repin's recording with pianist Nikolai Lugansky glows with a different kind of shimmer than, say, Dumais or Francescati's. Violinist Vadim Repin, with Nikolai Lugansky, offering a marvelously dreamlike compliment at the piano. This is really an impressive recording. When he wants to be, Repin can be a truly intense player with a rich sound at his disposal. Nonetheless, he never allows this to overpower Franck's carefully considered textures. In other words, he never overplays the drama. Nor does he sidestep the more direct moments in, say, the faster second movement. I'll be coming back to this later with the fourth movement. Before I heard this remarkable performance, incidentally Leonid Kogan's last recital, recorded at the Salzburg Festival in 1978, I had never quite appreciated how tearful the theme of the canon of the fourth movement can sound. There's a wistfulness to Kogan's violin timbre, which surely gained in poignancy as he entered his final decade before his death at the age of 54. For what he lost in his famously superhuman technical control, he gained in an otherworldly dimension. It's as though he knows that this will be the end.
The Kogans managed to perfectly capture the spirit of Franck's tempo marking in this final movement, Allegretto poco mosso, something along the lines of quite lively with a small bit of movement. But in the development in piano solo following the canon, Leonid Kogan's intense cries in the upper register of the E string are just a bit too fast for my taste, although he's clearly moving things along to save the intensity for the very end of the section we just heard. Other violinists take this melodic episode after the canon rather quickly, even if they don't necessarily rush through it. Like Isabel Faust, paired with the wonderfully sensitive Alexander Melnikov on a piano by Erard from As we've just heard, Isabel Faust's vibrato is judicious and applied as an ornament, making her sound a particularly good companion to Melnikov's period instrument. Having said that, I can't help feeling that this recording is marked by a quality of self-denial, as though Faust is afraid to use the full resources of the violin unless she really has no other alternative. Rather than creating drama, this tendency to emphasize the preciousness of gestures over real melody becomes tiresome. The great Christian Ferras, one of my favorite violinists for the Romantic War Horses, offers a different and I think more satisfying approach to this final movement, and in particular to the transition between canon and episode. Thank you. 
The French violinist Christian Ferras in a 1966 recording with his countryman Pierre Barbizet on the piano. As you can hear, Ferras doesn't necessarily take the high bit in the violin particularly fast, but he changes his tone to something so sublimely beautiful and gripping. The conclusion of the fourth and last movement offers some interesting problems for the interpreters. Some performers, like Ferras himself, take a rather understated stance, emphasizing the logic of the canon and the way Franck brings all the various themes of the sonata together. Closing bars of the Franck Violin Sonata as played by Christian Ferras on violin with pianist Pierre Barbizet. It's only on the final chord that we have any sense of real closure. In the preceding bars, Barbizet draws an ethereal tone from the piano, as though the sonata and all its composite material are simply disappearing into thin air. Nice effect, but it has a somewhat morose quality. Let's return to Augustin Dumay with Maria Joa Pires and hear how they handle the last minute or so of this final movement. Augustin Dumay with Maria Joa Pires at the piano, in the final moments of Franck's sonata, a satisfying conclusion without bombast, which still gives a sense of finality. Others, like violinist Sarah Chang, take the more victorious route to a thrilling ending.
Chang on the violin, with Lars Vogt as her superbly brilliant partner at the piano. This is one of the more grand finishes to the sonata on record. Triumphalism aside, though, there are issues. As I've said before, the flexibility of the wrist and the right hand holding the bow goes a long way in producing variations of color and speed of attack. The more rigid bow hold favored by Russian and American players produces an impressive sound, whether in a massive fortissimo or a flute-like pianissimo. The success of this bow hold when applied to Frank's sonata, of course, depends on whether the player has a flexible wrist. Kogan and Heifetz do, Chang less so. This rigidity, when combined with a pervasive vibrato of the same speed throughout the entire piece, means that Chang's playing results in impressive moments but tiresome half-hours. If a triumphant ending is your thing, Vadim Repin's recording, which I've already noted for its introspection and sophistication, offers a more convincing reading. Violinist Vadim Repin, with Nikolai Lugansky at the piano, in the closing minute or so of the Franck Sonata. The dialogue here and throughout the entire recording between the two artists is so fetching, so impressive in its commitment. But a majestic grand opera ending is just not my thing here, and I think this kind of barnstorming runs contrary to Franck's melancholic musical language. As we've heard, it's hard to get this perfect balance. For my fellow recording history buffs out there, the radio performance by Gerhard Taschner with Walter Gieseking on the piano from 1947 edges in at a very close second place and is my archival first choice. Is it perfect? Of course not. It's a live recording. But the expressive range of Taschner's violin playing, coupled with Gieseking's complete mastery of Frank's particular idiom and unique approach to the piano, makes for a truly memorable performance. The sheer melancholy of this interpretation, no doubt colored by the time and place when it was recorded, remains etched in my heart as one of the most emotional versions of this piece. Perhaps it has more to do with a lost school of playing than with Toshner and Gieseking themselves. Either way, we're very lucky that the SWR decided to re-release this in a digital format. By now, it should be pretty clear that I'm enamored with the recording by Augustin Dumais and Maria Joie Pires. This performance has an honesty and an openness to it, which I prefer above all the other collaborations I've heard on disc. Even that one out-of-tune note on the piano in the second movement can't stop me from highly recommending this recording. The producers really should have caught that. I would have almost gone for Kyunghwa Chung's recording with Radu Lupu, but after several listenings, I tired of its occasionally hectoring tone. Several listenings of the Dumais and Piresh recording, however, made me long for them every time I heard everyone else's version. 
So we're at the end here. There are a whole bunch of recordings that I haven't discussed, mostly historic ones, and I even started worrying at one point that maybe I wouldn't like anything recorded after, say, 1970. I was proven wrong, and I think César Franck's violin sonata is in good hands in our own time, with a number of really quite superb recordings to choose from. Let's have Augustin Dumais and Maria Joao Pires play us out here, not with the final movement, but the devastating strains of the recitativo fantasia, where Franck takes us into uncharted expressive territory, ephemeral and yet so deep in its ghost-like utterances. The improvisatory fantasy that's the third movement of the A major violin sonata by César Franck, magically inhabited by the duo of Augustin Dumais and Maria Joao Pires. And for reviewer Mahanes Fahani, that's the recording to which he always wanted to return after hearing any of the others, which is why it's Mahan's overall building a library recommendation. You'll find it on Deutsche Grammophon. Full details of that recording and some of Mahan's other favourites are on the Record Review website. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. Next week, it's music by Bach, Mark Lowther comparing recordings of the keyboard concertos. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, 90 to 93 FM, online and on digital radio. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.